I don't normally begin uh, a sermon with a prayer request, but I want to do just that this morning and ask that you would, um, if you would remember to pray for me this week. Uh, Tomorrow morning, I head to Camp Gilead, and I will be uh, preaching nine times this week. And the 10th sermon will be right back here uh, next Sunday. Those of you that know me well know that uh, I, I didn't have to give much thought to the request to preach nine times at Camp Gilead. I'm looking, um, really looking forward to it. I received a, a text message from a dear friend this morning that said this. Preach the word of God as if, as if it were the last sermon you were going to preach before Jesus returns. That sounds strangely similar to what the Puritan pastor and writer Richard Baxter said when he said, As a dying man, I preach to dying men, sure to never preach again. So with those two admonitions at the forefront of my mind, and now that I'm thoroughly intimidated and have a a, a weighty responsibility before me, I want to invite you to turn in God's word to the book of Romans, Romans chapter 1. And as you make your way to Romans chapter 1, would you please uh, stand for the reading of God's word? One of the things we want to be careful to do is never pit Scripture against Scripture. Sometimes you hear a a, a preacher or a theologian say this is the most important verse in the Bible. We know that every verse in the Bible is of utmost importance. But having said that, let me say this. If you were to go away uh, and spend the rest of your life on a desert island and you only had to take five passages of scripture with you that's all you could take that's all you had room for the passage that we're going to read right now would be one of those passages that you would need to bring this is an absolutely powerful section of scripture and that's why we're taking four weeks four weeks to walk through these two verses romans chapter one beginning of verse 16 for i am not ashamed of the gospel For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray together. Father, we want to begin by thanking you. For who you are, thank you for the opportunity to to sing praises to you, to focus in on your attribute of holiness. We will learn more about that today and the holiness that you require uh, from the creatures. And Lord, as we uh, read these words over and over again, as we meditate upon them, as we... uh, As we contemplate the meaning, I I pray that you would uh, help us to to see the reality of these verses, that you would etch the reality of these verses onto our hearts and onto our minds. Lord, as I will give reference to here in a few moments, there are some things that we will learn today that has the power to cause offense in the heart and the mind of some people. But I pray that offense would not be taken. Rather, there would be a a transforming work of grace. That we would see the word of God for what it is. 
And that the Holy Spirit would apply that that word into someone's life, into many, many hearts this morning, that we would be changed and transformed forever. And so we come humbly. We come with contrition. We come trembling at your word and ask that you, as we pray every week, do a mighty work of grace here in this place. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the title of the message is The Gospel-Saturated Life. This is the third part of this adventure that we're walking through together in verses 16 and 17. What is the gospel-saturated life? I mentioned two weeks ago that when we read verses 16 and 17, that an explosion occurs. And because of this explosion in these two verses, a very careful and detailed study merits our attention. Four statements are offered by the Apostle Paul in these few Verses, the sum total of what make up what we're referring to as the gospel saturated life. Let me review those for you. Statement number one, Paul says in verse 16, I am not ashamed of the gospel. I hope that statement has challenged you. I hope that statement has convicted you. I hope that you you have had opportunities over the last couple of weeks to to consider the power and the importance of that statement. I am not ashamed of the gospel. And I trust that you can say that with the Apostle Paul. In fact, I'm just curious how many of you would be willing to say that right now. I am not Ashamed of the gospel. Two of you. That's wonderful. How about the rest of you? I am not ashamed of the gospel. That's the importance of what Paul has for us when he says just that. Statement number two, also in verse 16, he says, The gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Verse 17, statement three. He says, the righteousness of God then is revealed in the gospel. We looked at the last two statements last week. Now this morning, I want to begin to unpack the fourth statement. And this statement is a statement of of titanic importance. And he makes that statement at the end of verse 17. And he says this, the righteous shall live by faith. The strategy for examining that statement will go something like this. I want to direct your attention to begin with to three very important headings. Next week, we will take the whole hour to unpack the fourth heading with which I will share uh, when we come back next week. The first heading you'll see in your notes is this. It's the context. The context. It's important that we examine the the historical context, the, the theological context that surrounds this verse, this statement at the end of verse 17. I need to begin by saying that throughout church history, there has always been a long line of godly men who have affirmed this truth. Somewhere along the way, 
the church began to, to embrace the idea that Martin Luther was the first person to discover justification by faith alone. Even worse than that, they say he invented justification by faith alone. He didn't invent it. No more than Tertullian invented the doctrine of the Trinity. Tertullian simply unearthed the doctrine of the Trinity. Similarly, Martin Luther unearthed the doctrine of justification by faith alone. He wasn't the first to discover it. And so throughout church history, there have been, there is a long line of godly men and women who have embraced this reality. But from the days of the apostle all the way up until the 16th century, Many, many people, dare I say most people, held to the official teaching of the Roman Catholic Church. That is to say, they strayed ever so far from the truth. What I mentioned when I prayed a moment ago is that this message has a propensity to, to tick some people off. But my prayer today is that you won't be ticked off, rather that your, your heart will be transformed. You see, I, I have friends, as many as you do as well, who have, you have Roman Catholic friends and family members. And I want to give you just a, a, an, an inside look at my heart, and I think the same would hold true for you, that if you have Roman Catholic friends and family members, you love them, do you not? And so that's the framework, that's the, that's the background of what I want you to see. I, I don't want to come across as a Roman Catholic basher. That, that's not my intent today. My intent is for you to understand in a very clear and understandable way what the Roman Catholic Church has believed and taught and continues to teach about the gospel. That will become a very important point. Now, as a Roman Catholic monk in the 16th century, Martin Luther held the party line. He was, you might say, a card-carrying, faithful Roman Catholic monk. He embraced the typical Roman Catholic view that sinners are saved by faith plus works. Before Luther's conversion to the historic Christian faith, the sin in his life, the sin in his conscience, the sin in his mind almost drove him to the brink of despair. You see, Luther as an unconverted Roman Catholic monk, that may sound strange to your ears. He was this religious man. He was this... this Man who had a zeal for God, but as Paul says, it was a zeal for God, but it was not according to knowledge. He saw God as a holy judge that he could never work hard enough to please or appease. That is to say, he could never merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. He said this, quote, Sometimes Christ seems to me nothing more than an angry judge who comes to me with a sword in his hand, end quote. That was Martin Luther's paradigm. That was Martin Luther's worldview. And so you could see if, if your view of God is that you can't do enough to please him, that he's 
holy, 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 and all he does is come to judge your sin. That's what Luther believed. And so as a result, he sought desperately to work hard and please God. He worked desperately to earn the favor of God. We'd say, what did he do? Well, he used to fast for days on end. In fact, there are stories of how Martin Luther, as an unconverted Roman Catholic monk, would sleep in the snow without the aid of blankets to show his, his devotion to God. Some days he would be so proud of his quote-unquote personal holiness, he would say, I remember the first time I read this, I thought, oh, Martin, seriously? He would say to himself, today I have done nothing wrong. Today I have, I have come close to, to checking all the blanks. I have a to-do list before God and I checked everything on my to-do list. But then he would begin to question his efforts. Have I fasted long enough? Did I pray enough? Did I pray long enough? Have I worked hard enough to earn favor in the eyes of a holy God? Luther's frustration continues to intensify when he took his now infamous pilgrimage to Rome in 1510. I, I found this picture of Rome and I, I like to kind of get into the head of a man like Luther and imagine here he was. He walked and walked and walked. He was so excited to see Rome. And finally he, he gets to this little bluff overlooking the city and he sees the beloved city of Rome. He was so excited on this pilgrimage. Yet when he arrives, the piers for the new basilica of St. Peter's had just been put into place, but the Sistine Chapel was not yet complete. And so this picture would be quite a bit different than what he saw over 500 years ago, but he saw it nonetheless. And as he walked into the city, no doubt exhausted but his heart was brimming with enthusiasm he was he was so pumped up he got into the city and he was shocked and horrified by what he saw he was horrified by the the rampant ungodliness of priest after priest after priest he would see priests coming out of a brothel after spending time with a prostitute, he would hear priests using, priest using language that was not befitting of a man of God. And he became deeply disturbed by the practice of selling indulgences. You see, Pope Leo X had commissioned a man by the name of John Tetzel to sell indulgences to the faithful. Now, John Tetzel was the telemarketer of the 16th century. He was an amazing salesperson and indulgences were to be purchased for a price that would reduce the time that someone would spend in purgatory. Now, I want to say something to you and I don't, I don't say it glibly and I don't say it with any amount of snarkiness, but people ask me all the time, where did the doctrine of purgatory come from? Let me just give you the, the very basic answer. And I'm, for some reason, I, I caught the attention of my friend Tom Juckmas, who 
is a former Roman Catholic. And, and I see him smiling because he knows what I'm going to say, don't you, Tom? The Roman Catholic Church made it up. They made it up. It's not in the Bible. Purgatory is not in Scripture. Yet what Pope Leo X did is he commissioned the, the telemarketer of the day, John Tetzel, to, to go on this campaign and make sure that they could raise money for the church building program. Tetzel would cry out, As soon as the coin in the coffer rings, the soul from purgatory springs. In other words, put a coin in the coffer and you can take off years that your loved ones and you will spend in purgatory. Martin Luther actually purchased an indulgence as he had been deceived by this practice. And so context, the context was this. This was a religious culture in the 16th century deeply entrenched in what we call today as works-based righteousness. This is the context. Move with me now to the concern. The chief concern of the Roman Catholic Church and the chief concern of Luther and the Reformers was one and the same. But the answer was different for both parties. I want to have you hold your finger in Romans chapter 1 and go to Psalm chapter 130. Psalm 130. And I want to make sure that as we explore the concern that we're, we're clear in this idea that the Roman Catholic Church takes sin seriously. They take righteousness seriously. And in Psalm chapter 130 verse 3, we have maybe one of the most powerful and sobering rhetorical questions that you could ever pose. This is how the psalmist poses it. He says, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, that is, if you mark sin, O Lord, who could stand? Someone yell out the answer. No one. It's a powerful rhetorical question. And so the, the chief question of the reformers and Martin Luther was this, how can a sinful man, how can a sinful woman stand in the presence of a holy God? Psalm 130 verse 3 gets to the core of that problem. And as you know, scripture makes it abundantly clear that all people everywhere stand condemned apart from grace. All people are sinners by nature and by choice. Down the road, we'll get to Romans chapter 2, verse 5, that says this, But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. A verse that I learned as a probably a, a six or seven-year-old boy, and many of you re, uh, learned it as well, Romans chapter 3, 23, For all have sinned and have fallen short of the glory of God. Of God. With that in mind, as we think about this concern, I want to take a moment with you to, to examine the weightiness of sin. You see, sin is a stranglehold. Sin is a death grip on every person who has yet to believe in the grace 
of God and the Lord Jesus Christ. Sin, you might say, is a tyrant monster that masquerades as a helper, but will, in the end, lead you to hell. Sin corrupts, sin deceives, and sin kills. One of my favorite Puritan writers, in fact, outside of Jonathan Edwards, he's probably my favorite Puritan writer. His name is Thomas Watson. And I remember when I was in my early 20s, I picked up a book by Watson. It was my first Thomas Watson book entitled The Mischief of Sin. And I would throw a little plug in here for Watson. If, if, if you've heard me talk about him and you kind of wonder, what's this guy all about? I would strongly urge you to not run, but walk. Not, or not walk, but run, rather, to get a copy of The Mischief of Sin by Watson. It is an eminently readable book. It is a fascinating book, but most important, it is a biblical book. Here's what he says. He says, sin is a thorn in the conscience. It is a sword in the bones. He goes on. He says. Every sin is treason. Against the crown of heaven. Now the more treasons a person commits. The more he enrages his prince. To sin still is to dare God's justice. Tis to affront him to his face. And an affront will make him draw his sword. Watson says, every sin is a drop of oil upon hell's flame. Later in the book, he says this. He says, who would for a drop of pleasure endure a sea of wrath? You see, if God judged your sin, you would face his holy wrath. If God judged your sin, you would go to hell forever and ever and ever. I, I read a book a few days ago and the author was lamenting the fact that we don't hear about hell anymore. We don't hear about hell anymore. And even though I refer to hell and I believe in hell and I preach about hell, I was convicted myself that down the road it may be time to do a study on hell. I think it's very, very important. The key question now of the Reformation about sinners standing in the presence of a holy God, as I've already indicated, was not only important to Luther, it was important to Rome as well. Both sides agree that the sinner needs the righteousness of God. And I think that would be really the starting place, that both Protestants and Roman Catholics believe that every sinner needs the righteousness of God. Both sides also agree that apart from grace, the sinner stands condemned before a holy God. Moreover, both sides agree that sinners stand in need of the very righteousness of God. With this, we stand in agreement with our Roman Catholic friends and family members. How, how now the, Rome, the, the, the reformers viewed this righteousness becomes the sticking point during the days of the Protestant Reformation. Exactly how can it be that a sinner will stand righteous before a holy God. And so the answer to this crucial question was at the very heart and soul of the Reformation. So thus far we have seen the context. We have seen the concern. 
I want to conclude by moving to the third heading that I promised you, and that is the corrupted gospel. The corrupted gospel. This is the so-called gospel according to Rome, which I mentioned earlier is the gospel that we are saved by faith plus works. Here's the dilemma. Both Rome and Protestants believe that the sinner needs the righteousness of God. So we have to ask, how does it happen? And so my strategy in looking at verse 17, at the end of verse 17, is this. Today we'll examine what I'm calling the corrupted gospel, the corrupted gospel of the Roman Catholic Church. Next week we will look at the response by Luther and the reformers and see the the unbelievably encouraging development that takes place as Luther uncovers the doctrine of justification by faith alone. And by the way, he said this, the doctrine of justification by faith alone is the doctrine upon which the church stands or falls. What we're going to explore from now until the end of next week is, is so very important. As we were worshiping, and wasn't that a wonderful time of worship, I was thinking to myself that there are things in the local church that we can agree to disagree on. If, if we were to, to canvas the sanctuary right now, we could probably come up with several things that we have disagreements on but we can walk lockstep and barrel together down the road with we can be brothers we can be sisters we can agree to disagree one of those areas is this some of you believe that jesus will return before the tribulation most of you believe that jesus will return before the tribulation some of you believe that jesus will appear sometime in the the midst of the tribulation the mid-trib view and some of you believe that jesus will return at the end of the tribulation now i'll, I'll tell you an interesting story that i haven't shared much publicly before we came to christ fellowship i was a candidate to be a senior pastor at a large church over a thousand people. I was, I was super excited about it. New facility, multiple staff, and we were getting ready to move there. And I got a call one day, and the call went something like this. Uh, we're sorry, but you're out. And the reason was I didn't hold the party line on the pre-tribulational rapture of the Lord Jesus Christ. And to this day, it, it just, now I can kind of chuckle about it, right? It, it's actually kind of amusing uh, most of you know, I have not one time preached the three views of the tribulation since coming to Christ Fellowship. Why? Because it's not of primary importance. There are other areas that we can agree to disagree on. We can be unified as brothers and sisters in Christ. But this is an area that we can't get wrong. That is the, the essence and the nature of the gospel. R.C. Sproul, before he went to be with the Lord, wrote a book entitled Getting the Gospel Right. And some of you are no doubt wondering why four weeks for two verses. Move on, pastor. Well, the reason is we, 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 we can't afford to get the gospel wrong. And so today we look at the corrupted gospel. Next week we look at the cure for the corrupted gospel. Let's begin as follows. The Roman Catholic doctrine of justification is sacerdotal. That may be a new word for some of you. It's sacerdotal. That is this, that justification 
Rome teaches, is mediated through the ministrations of the priesthood of the Roman Catholic Church. That's how it's administered. And I want to walk you through four basic elements of how Rome sees the gospel. And you'll begin to put these together as we move along. Number one, baptism, baptism is the instrumental cause of justification. Baptism is the instrumental cause of justification. Rome teaches that justification then begins with baptism. The sacrament of baptism, you might say this, it gets the justification ball rolling. So when an infant is presented in a Roman Catholic church and that child is sprinkled, that is, that child is baptism, or that child receives his or her baptism, justification begins in the heart of that child. And I would add this, that nothing could be further from the truth. Nothing could be further from the truth. Number two, and related to the first point, justification then is via infused grace. Infused grace. In the new catechism of the Roman Catholic Church, we read the following. Quote, justification is conferred in baptism. This is a Roman Catholic document. Justification is conferred in baptism, the sacrament of faith. It conforms us to the righteousness of God who makes us inwardly just, that is righteous, by the power of his mercy. End quote. So do you hear that? What Rome is saying that when a child is baptized when a child is sprinkled that's when the justification train begins to roll down the tracks that child then is infused with grace the grace of justification is infused or poured into the child and i i like the language of poured in and you, you think about a, 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 a large pitcher, and if I came to the pitcher with another pitcher of water, I could pour that water into the pitcher. What do we know about that particular pitcher? That water can be poured back out. What can be poured in can be poured back out, and we'll see that and why that's important in a moment. Additionally, Rome teaches that at this point, the baptismal candidate is cleansed of original sin. Does that shock you? That should be totally shocking to you. That when a child is sprinkled, that that child is cleansed from original sin. Rome teaches that the baptismal candidate is regenerated and then placed in a state of grace. Now remember, no profession of faith has taken place thus far. But grace is, is infused into the heart of the child. Additionally, the person maintains justifying grace so long as they do nothing to hinder it. And we'll see more of that in a moment. Move on to number three with me. Justification is by faith plus works. And it's important that we understand that the Roman Catholic Church has historically taught and continues to teach the doctrine of justification by faith. They just do not believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone. It's faith plus works. There are other components we could wrestle with, like 
penance and purgatory. But at this point, listen to what R.C. Sproul says. He says, quote, The gospel according to Rome is the good news that the sinner may be justified if he or she receives the sacraments, has faith, and cooperates with grace to the point of becoming inherently righteous. Now think about Luther. Luther struggled Luther battled as an unconverted Roman Catholic priest. Now you know why. Because he would work and work and work. And sometimes he would say, I've been so good today, I didn't even commit a sin. But what about the next day? You see, he was, he was deceived. And he never knew when enough was enough. He never knew when enough was enough. Look at number four. Justification then, now remember pouring in the water and pouring it back out. Justification in a Roman Catholic scheme can be lost. You commit a mortal sin in the Roman Catholic Church, you lose justifying grace. Now, if you think about the, again, the historical context of the the Protestant Reformation, Martin Luther nails the, the 95 Theses to the castle door at Wittenberg in 1517. In 1521, the Reformation had begun to explode, not only in Germany, but throughout Western Europe and beyond. In 1521, he's called to the Diet at Worms. I have been to that spot in Worms and have witnessed the place where Martin Luther made his famous stand. Here I stand... I can do no other, right? When he is admonished to, or he he is asked to admit, are those your books? He says, yes, those are my books. And he is asked, do you recant? There's one old, old movie where he responds to that initial question with, here I stand, God help me, I can do no other. And you're like, oh, what what a brave man. That's not what happened. Luther asked Rome, can I have time to think about it? (laughs) I need some time to mull it over. And so they gave him that evening to mull it over. And he, he prayed and he sought God's help and God's wisdom. And he came back to the table and they asked him once again, Martin, are those your books? Yes, those are my books. Do you recant? Here I stand. I can do no other. That's 1521. And so the Reformation is exploding in in Germany and around Western Europe and really around the world. 1521. 1545 now. 28 years after the Reformation explodes in Germany and beyond, the Roman Catholic Church begins a council. It's called the Council of Trent. Now, I have been to pastor's conferences that lasted for a week. I've been to pastors' conference that last, conferences that have lasted several days. I have been to denomin, denominational meetings that would go one weekend, then we'd meet on another weekend and another weekend. And I have to tell you, I come home absolutely exhausted, right? My mind is, is excited, but I'm weary. That's just a few days. The Council of Trent... And the Roman Catholic Church convenes from 1545 to 1563. We're not talking, Randy, this isn't military time. 1545 to 1563. No, these are dates. 
1545, 1546, 1547, all the way to 1563. So year after year after year, the leadership of the Catholic Church comes together and they're asking this question, how do we respond to the reformers? We have to frame a serious response. Here is one of those responses. Listen close. Those who through sin have forfeited the received grace of justification when moved by God, they exert themselves to obtain through the sacrament of penance the recovery by the merits of Christ of the grace lost. You say, what does that mean? It means you can lose your salvation. Because grace can be poured in, grace can then be poured right back out. Of all the Roman Catholic friends that I have had and continue to maintain a friendship with, this is a sticking point with, with many in the Roman Catholic Church. It's something that, that my friends I've talked to can't seem to, to understand. Why? Because this is what they've been taught all their lives. And so it's easy for me to sympathize why they would believe that. Here's what's crucial for understanding. The 16th century Roman Catholic Church, you need to know, repudiated and rejected the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Listen to the Council of Trent. This is an absolutely powerful statement. Quote, if anyone says the sinner is justified by faith alone, stop. Can I just kind of have some fun with you? Without raising your hand, I want you in the back of your mind to, to answer honestly. Could you be one who would be willing to put your neck on the line and say, I believe in the doctrine of justification by faith alone? I take back my strategy. Raise your hand if you say, I believe in justification by faith alone. I hope you all raise your hands, right? Listen to this statement. If anyone says the sinner is justified by faith alone, that's all of you who raised your hand and me as well. Meaning, so there's no ambiguity here, that nothing else is required to cooperate in order to obtain the grace of justification. Let him be anathema. What's that mean? Let him be condemned. You know what it really means? Let him be damned. If you believe in justification by faith alone, the Council of Trent maintained and continues to maintain that you are under a curse. Now think about Luther back in 1515 when he was converted. Our text this morning in verse 17 is the passage that God sovereignly used to quicken the heart of this Roman Catholic monk. You see, Luther had been teaching through the book of Romans much slower than me. You're like, oh man, are you kidding me? And so he's teaching through the book of Romans and he comes to Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17. And here's what he says. He says, my situation was that although an impeccable monk, you see the self-righteousness there emerging again? 
He says, I stood before God as a sinner troubled in conscience, and I had no confidence that my merit would assuage him. Therefore, did not I, or I, I did not love a just and angry God, but rather hated and murmured against him. At one point, Luther says, love God? No, sometimes I hate him. Yet, he says this, I clung to the dear Paul and had a great yearning to know what he meant, end quote. And so what Luther discovered, what he understood is that apart from justifying grace that pardoned his sin, he would never have peace with God. He couldn't fast enough. He couldn't work enough. He couldn't scrub enough floors. Once he understood, however, embraced justification by faith alone, once he accepted the merits of Jesus Christ on his behalf, he was saved and he had peace with God. Have you ever heard an evangelist say something like this? Brother, are you saved? I have to be really honest with you. Sometimes it kind of irritates me when I hear that language. Brother, are you saved? Are you saved? I want to say this. Saved from what? Saved from what? So it's something we ought to hear. It's something we we ought to ask one another. Are you saved from the wrath of God? And so Luther's next task as a converted man was to spread the message of the gospel of justification by faith alone. It began in Wittenberg as he nailed his now infamous 95 Theses to the Castle Church, prompting public debate. Thousands of more copies were printed and reprinted thanks to the recent invention of Gutenberg's press. Luther's books and sermons were published widely and the Protestant Reformation was born and people everywhere learned for the first time for many of them that they now could have right standing with the Holy God by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. To bring this home for you and I today, I want you to think about where we live. We've been talking about the context of Germany. Now I want you to think about the context of Whatcom County. When you, when you walk down Main Street in Everson, when you walk by the high school in Nooksack, when you walk on Grover Street in Linden, when you walk on Alabama Street in the city of Bellingham, when you go downtown, what do you see? You see Person after person after person after person who believe with all of their heart that they can merit favor in the eyes of a holy God by being a good little boy or a good little girl. Or they might take it one step further and say, I realize I need to be justified by a holy God. And so I believe that is the historic position of the Roman Catholic Church. But there's one addition. It's I believe plus it's what I do that merits favor in the eyes of the holy God. And my question as we close this morning, have you subtly embraced a works-oriented salvation? I think it's entirely possible that in a, in a conservative Baptist church like Christ Fellowship, it is entirely possible to, to slip into this way of thinking that I believe 
And then I do X, Y, Z to merit favor in the eyes of a holy God. And nothing could be further from the truth. That is to say, we slip into Rome's kind of thinking. Last week, I shared a quote, and I want to return to that quote. It's a quote from Tim Keller, who says this, The gospel calls us to live in a, 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 what he calls a because-therefore relationship with the Lord. I would even go so far to say this. It would be worth your while to get a note card or put a message on your computer screen or to put it in your car or to put it on your refrigerator or to put it on your desk. These two words, because, therefore, because, therefore, he goes on to say, because Christ died for us, therefore, we are forgiven. Do you hear where the works are there? Are there any works that muddy the water? There are none whatsoever. Because Christ died for us, therefore we are forgiven. Because Christ has fulfilled the law in our place, therefore we are set free from its demands and its penalty. Keller goes on. He says, this is an unconditional relationship that is based on the principle of grace. And then he concludes with these important words. The difference between these two perspectives is the difference between religion, which is an if-then model, and the gospel, which is a because-therefore model. And he says this, the religious life, the the if-then kind of life, if I fast enough, If I pray enough, if I memorize enough verses, if I put enough coins in the coffer, if I do enough goodness, then perhaps God will look favorably on me. He says the religious life is not the gospel centered life. We would say the religious life is not the gospel saturated life. The gospel-saturated life, then, is the one that opposes and stands against and contrary to the corrupted gospel. And that is the corrupted gospel of not only the Roman Catholic Church, but any other corrupt gospel that adds works into the equation. Indeed, the gospel-centered life is the one that embraces and proclaims the doctrine of justification by faith alone, which is the subject that we will turn to next week. And I I don't know how I'm going to wait for seven days to, to unpack what the Bible teaches in verse 17 and numerous other passages in the book of Romans and beyond the glory and the beauty and the victory of the doctrine of justification by faith alone. Indeed, as Luther said, it is the article upon which the church stands or falls. You see, if we get the gospel wrong, I want to say this very graciously and clearly. If we get the gospel wrong, we go to hell. If we get the gospel right, we are forgiven. We are justified. We spend all of eternity with the saints and the Lord Jesus Christ and the holy angels on the new earth forever and ever and ever. I read this morning in yet another Tim Keller book that the worst thing that a human being can encounter is the death of a loved one. And I couldn't agree 
any more than, than, than that. That's the worst thing to experience is to say goodbye to a loved one. Yet, what does historic Christianity teach us? If our loved one was in Christ, one day we will see him or her again. And in heaven, there will be no goodbyes. There will be no goodbyes. I remember when Jareen and I were dating and we lived in different cities and I would go see her or she would go see me, right? Jordan, where's Jordan? Jordan, you and and Morgan are about to face this and you're going to have to say goodbye. And it's going to be like, I don't want to say goodbye. I don't want to say goodbye. I remember that. But in heaven, there will be no more goodbyes. Why? Because we have been justified by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Think about the incredible resources and riches we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let's pray together. So, Lord, thank you. Thank you for the gospel of your son. Thank you that as sinners, sinners by nature and choice, that we can receive the free gift of salvation, which comes by grace alone through faith alone, in Christ alone. And Lord, I'm so convinced that even in a church like ours, we can subtly embrace the mindset that says, I believe plus what I do merits favor in the eyes of a holy God. May we cast that kind of logic aside. And it's not logic at all. It is a lie from the evil one. And so may we glory in and revel in this this important doctrine that we are justified by faith and by faith alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.